the show you're about to hear discusses films, books, and TV shows in their entirety, twists, endings, and all, without fear of spoilers. So if you don't want to know who dies, who done it, or how it all ends, we strongly advise you switch off now. Bonjour, je m'appelle Paul Tyler et je vous souhaite la bienvenue à Spoiler, la revue qui est passée en revue les films, les livres et les émissions de télévision dans l'intégralité. C'est Samine, regardez à la comédie romantique française 2001, Amélie, et juste un autre dernier advertissement. Non, parlerons de ces exemples d'intrigues. Nous allons les ruiner pour vous. Donc, si vous n'en avez pas encore vu Amélie, allez et regardez-la maintenant, puis revenons nous voir par la suite. Sont ils partis? Toi, avec le spectacle! Fanciful, whimsical, quirky, innocent, beguiling, fun, joy and charm are the words that jump off the screen as you look up Amélie on the internet. If you've used the World Wide Web to attempt to degrade other humans by calling them something like Snowflake, then it's fair to say that this film isn't for you. But if going around calling people names is your game, then you need to make sure that a French waitress isn't meddling in your affairs. You could soon discover that your slippers are too small or you find yourself brushing your teeth with foot cream. However, if you are one of life's do-gooders, then that same French waitress could hook you up with long-lost childhood keepsakes, introduce you to a new love, or steal your garden gnome and get an air hostess friend to take pictures of it all around the world to somehow make you think that travelling would be a better use of your time than moping around the house. Moscou, et voilà. Rien, pas d'explication. Il avait peut-être tout simplement envie de voir du pays. Audrey Tattoo plays Amélie, who after a bizarre childhood has isolation issues, but discovers her place in the world by discreetly helping other people in her community and occasionally hindering cruel grocers. Is it enough for Amélie to help others, or will there be guardian angels at work encouraging Amélie to find her own true love? There probably will be. I'm not a scriptwriter. I've seen the film. Alors, allez-y. Upon its release in 2001, Amelie received unanimous critical acclaim. In some circles, it was called The Fabulous Destiny of Amelie Poulain. But here, on Spoiler, we don't hold with alternative titles, so no more of this, thank you. Roger Ebert is a fan, stating, It takes so much confidence to dance on the tightrope of whimsy. Amelie takes those chances and gets away with them. I tried to add balance by finding bad reviews, and I did by going into the world of IMDB user reviews. That way lies madness. It's there if you want it, but I value my mental health too much. That said, it's not a given that the spoiler team will adore Amelie, but I happen to know they like a bit of magie. That's magic to you. Later in the show, we'll be taking a look at some other French feel-good films. But first, joining me here are the best pair of snowflakes I've ever had the opportunity <laughs> to know. And there are some wonderful snowflakes out there. It's Andy Goulding and Rachel Burnett. Hey, Hello. hey. Hello. Bonjour. Oh, 
so uh, well hey let's let's say this now uh, apologies to any french listeners anyone who's ever been to france anyone that can point to it on a map it was uh, identified uh, at my school that my french was so bad uh, that they didn't let me do German. I did extra RE instead, <laughs> of which I obviously didn't pay any attention to. I just stared out of the window. Uh, extra French lessons might have been helpful, but hey, that's the city school in the 1980s for you. Um, so, Andy, how's your French? <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it's not not too bad. I'm, I'm a little bit rusty after all these years, but I uh, still need the subtitles to, to watch this. Um, it's been been a while since, since I've seen this film, and I'd actually forgotten entirely what I, th- I thought of it. I feel that there's two very extreme sides of opinion when it comes to Amelie. One of them is it's this really sweet, heartwarming, good-hearted, feel-good film. And at the other end of the scale, there's people who seem to think it's just twee, over-romanticised garbage. And in my opinion, neither of these extremes really hits the mark. And both of them for the same reason, because they make the mistake of focusing on the misnomer that this is a feel-good film. And I don't think that does it does it justice. I don't think it fits easily into the feel-good category. I think it's a lot more subversive than that. I don't think Emily is a guardian angel, as she's described by one character in the film. I think she's an imp. She's well-intentioned, but she's got this surprisingly vindictive streak. And I think that implicitly reflects something more interesting in the filmmaker and in the filmmaker's intentions. Uh, now, having defended Amelie over Charger's simplicity, I've got to say, having watched it again, I've got very mixed feelings about this film. I think it's very admirably ambitious, and it crams a lot into two hours. But in doing so, I think too often it kind of lets go of the reins a little bit. I like all the little extraneous details that, that build up into, into an idea of the characters, but it makes it feel overloaded with unnecessary detail at the expense of getting engaging with the characters more for me. Uh, and likewise, the abundance of subplots are often so ingeniously worked out and presented. But as we flip between them, it just kind of, it started to make my head hurt a little bit. And ultimately, by the end of the first hour of this, knowing that there was a whole hour to go, I felt kind of like Cool Hand Luke on egg number 38. <laughs> or maybe to use a more apt simile, I felt like, I'd just finished a delicious French pastry, only to be told that part of the deal was that I had to eat 20 more of them. So I've landed in a a place not of... I don't dislike the film at all. Uh, It's got a lot going for it, but I certainly don't love it. And I've, I've landed somewhere around tentative admiration. Well, let me tell you exactly where you've landed. You've landed on the fence, which is usually my position. (laughs) I'm going to, you know, um, I I might let you sit next to me. (laughs) Uh, Rachel, were you beguiled by Emily? Oh, I always have been. Always have been. It's difficult for me because I've watched it recently, obviously, for this. But I've seen it many, many times before. So I find it very difficult to see it through fresh eyes and to see it the way Andy's seen it, like looking at it as, oh, it's too much. It's not too much for me at all. It's, it is one of my favourite films of all time. It is my desert island disc, probably because there is so much in it. You can watch it a thousand times and still see new, new things in it. And I loved watching it again. I, I really fell in love with it. So, I mean, not wanting to prod a dog with a star, sharp stick, and you, you, I apologise for the dog analogy. How... <laughs> Just how cross with Andy are you right now? I'm not at all. Oh. I was hoping Sorry. Flip tables and things. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know, it's funny, Andy, because I... Oh, 
I saw this a long, long time ago and I was expecting more magic this time when I, I watched it around. And I think it was there. I, I really liked it. I really enjoyed it. But I, one thing I didn't feel was that it was about the length. I thought, mate, you know, this could have been wrapped up a bit quicker and a bit less complicated. I could have done with a, actually, now you say it, a couple of, couple of less characters maybe um, in, in and around. But hang on. Yeah. <laughs> so so I, I want to focus a little bit on, on the beginning uh, because these, these, this is something that's really stuck out for me, and that's the narration. Uh, firstly, I love the depth and the tone and the voice of that narration, which I think, you know, if, if you listen back to the top of this show again, you know, <laughs> I could go there. Um, but actually, do you know what it was? It was very, very quick. And I'm no stranger to watching things. You know, I, I have a very... Uh, my, uh, my eldest sometimes describes me as basic, right? And I know what she means by that. It's not too insulting, but I know what she means by that. But I'm not so basic that I don't like things with subtitles. You know, I think I'm just, I'm a step above basic. A little complex. <laughs> so, I, I, you know, I, I, I don't dislike subtitles, but I think with this one and actually having to, ma- I don't know, do you ever make notes with the, I mean, yeah, you, you know, you make notes while you're watching the film. Sometimes, sometimes. I, I, I grab my phone and just, you know, stick something in the notes thing because yeah. I, I know what my memory's like. I know I'm going to forget it otherwise. And uh, I, I, I was doing that. And then actually I just found myself not being able to just keep up with the subtitles and watch the screen you know, because everything was happening so quickly. Mm. And I, I did wonder at the beginning if it was going to, it seemed just a touch like Matilda, I thought, yeah. right until the point, right until the point uh, where um, the lady committed suicide from a very tall building and landed on, on uh, Amelie's mother, which was, I mean, really just a biz- really bizarre. I mean, I... I've had peculiar thoughts, but I don't think I could ever think of that as a, you know writing it as a script. I don't think I'd no. <laughs> but isn't that the wonder of Amelie though? This yes. is where I it really suits my personality. This, this film it really does. This is me to a T. As far as there's always really strange ideas like the LPs that are made, you know, like licorice mm. and the and the woman who's in a coma, but she's just t- saving up all her sleep time and then she's going to be awake for the rest of her life. And all these little things are really interesting to me. And then putting your hand in grain and all these little tiny bits of minutiae of life. And I love it. That's what I really love about it. And I totally get what you mean about the subtitles going like the clappers. Mm-hmm. And at the very beginning, it talks about a fly going a certain speed and then two glasses that were dancing and all this kind of thing. But that's the magic for me, and I do like the way that's done. And it kind of uh, it kind of preempts that bit later on where Amelie takes the blind man for a walk, mm. and she just fires off all those details as, as they're walking yeah. past. It's that kind of yeah. thing, isn't it? I also really like the fact that there are those dark details, like Amelie's mum being killed by someone trying to commit suicide, mm. landing on her, and like you said, the woman in the coma. And yeah. it's that those things that come in like almost immediately which make me think that it's more subversive than just a straightforward feel-good film and I think yeah. that's too often overlooked in, in reviews of it people talk about how it's just pure feel-good and pure joy and I think there's a lot of, of darkness in there as well oh there is I mean Nino works in a, in a porn palace you know yeah, yeah. He, he could have just worked at a groceries but he doesn't <laughs> he works in a porn palace and so it, I think that the thing about Jean-Pierre Genet he never never shies away from darkness mm. you see things like city of lost children he does not shy away and it's definitely there if you if you you don't have to look that hard for it either it's definitely there i mean blubber the fish is suicidal you know it's funny <laughs> but it's also really sad <laughs> and that's her only friend and it gets chucked in the river you know there's lots of things like it's so sad that she gets so excited about her dad touching her that her heart races and so he thinks mm. she has a heart problem <laughs> i mean that's quite that's quite dark yeah albeit quite sweet as well but there's a darkness in that and you know when she's sat trying to get through to him in one day and she says something about you know oh i've had to have an abortion and blah 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 and he's not listening to her but it's those little dark touches that make it 
that make it Amelie, for mm. make it. And I absolutely don't mind that you don't like it. Because <laughs> well, I, I love I, it. And it's that's not what that I, I dislike it. I am torn. There's a lot, a lot I like in there, but it just sort of sits weirdly with me. I, don't, I feel it, it feels stodgy overall to me. You see, I, I came out, it's funny because uh, my wife, my wife, she <laughs> walked out of the room and she said, oh, I'll leave you to your fruity French film then. And I said, it's well, not oh, fruity okay, at all. Okay, well, it's a stereotype. But there, are, there is that moment in there, in there where, they, where they flick between uh, people um, having uh, a wild old time with each other. Yeah. <laughs> Which again, if you, if, you, if you were to take, if you were to take that out and I could, I don't know, the thing is if you removed a couple of bits, you removed the, the sum of its parts. I understand that. But I was thinking, well, this, could, this really could be quite a family, a family film if, you know, if a few of the more extreme things were, were, were taken out but then that's not, that's not it is no it? and it it's can't be because it. it's not a family film yeah. it's about being a dreamer it's about being on the outskirts of life and it's about living and not standing on the periphery for me that's what it's about mm. but it's, it's funny when you say dark uh, I think it's definitely worth talking about the colour oh, uh, the colour yes. of the use now I, I was first really made aware of colour in films uh, from the film Far From Heaven mm. with Julianne mm. Moore which oh, is very uh, autumnal yeah. isn't yeah. it and we're recording this in autumn and I've been reminded of this year and it's still that just that film sticks with me now every autumn it makes me appreciate you know what, what's going on um, I mean I, I like greens and yellows and reds which is good <laughs> because they've, they've, this film is very green very yellow and very, well no, it's actually yellow someone mentioned yellow I didn't notice the yellow I noticed the reds but but that's the the depth and the richness of life you know seeing all the colours mm. and I think just for, for me as an artist as well I don't know it just it really speaks to me on so many levels I will get to the score but the music and you know the the attention to detail in the apartments I love all the details in the apartments everybody's got these little knickknacks and little pictures and stuff it's so rich I did one of my sheets of paper I did make a note saying I bet Rachel wants to live in that apartment for six months yes <laughs> six months <laughs> whatever no, you don't want to live you don't, don't live in a city for more than six months <laughs> or a big city for more than six months I'll just move that apartment to a smaller town but yeah. that apartment will do me fine yeah no I think I think Andy makes a good point about and again, this probably gives it its depth and probably gives it more more character in the in in the karma thing, you know, when she's going around doing all these good deeds, and then you know, but then you think, well, actually, what right has she got to go around making that grocer's slippers smaller? <laughs> well, that's one of the, the the darkest, but one of the funniest parts of it, and that this is what makes me think that she's actually quite vindictive. She's not she's not a guardian angel, and she's and ev- also everything that she does doesn't come off well like when she she sets up uh, the two people in, in the cafe she knows that that the man is is a bit of a, a, a stalker really and she kind of sets him up with another woman who then takes that on her shoulders doesn't she and it goes wrong and so I think that's quite a nice detail that shows that it would be easy to say everything Emily does turns out perfectly and but it doesn't and in what she does to the grosser who's a bully you could argue that she she does worse because she play she manipulates him mentally, doesn't she? And she that's really dark to me. But also, it's one of one of the funniest parts of the film. I think. And, I mean, that thing about about changing the slippers to get smaller that really reminded me of uh, one of my favourite books, The Twits by Roald Dahl, where uh, Mister Twit convinces Mrs. Twitch is shrinking by adding a tiny piece of wood to the bottom of a walking stick every day until she she feels it's getting it's getting bigger and bigger and she's getting smaller and smaller. Sorry, I'm running out of breath in that sentence. <laughs> getting excited about the twits. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, I, I did like that side of it. Uh, 
and I think that it kind of it kind of gives it a, a bit more depth in that it, it shows that she is a flawed character, not a not a pure kind of good character entirely. But I wanted a bit more. One of the things that that I don't like about this film is that I don't think we ever really get to grips with Emily's character. There's I think it's there's not much there. I know she's quite part of it is that she's quite guarded, but I felt that beyond uh, reacting to things, we we never really saw what made her very much. Yeah, I do get that. I think probably for me as a dreamer and everything else, I I was able to project mm. onto Amelie because there wasn't that depth of character. If it had been too rounded, I wouldn't have been able to project myself into her. But because I was able to, you know, 17 years ago, when it was when it first came out, 16 years ago, I felt a kindred spirit. So I filled in her blanks with what I felt. So when she was isolated, I thought, yeah, I was like that. I was a child that never really left the house and had my own sort of fantasy worlds and stuff. So I just projected. Um, if, you, if you can't project, then she will seem quite shallow, I suppose. But then same for a lot of them. All of them had, you know, a fairly shallow... I mean, the glass man, he's, he's got an entire film in him, the glass man. And all the guys in the, in the cafe, I wrote down, you know, you could do a film just about the guys in the cafe. Yeah. Um, you know, Hoppolito and, and how he became you know, the writer that he isn't. <laughs> and, things, and, and Joseph, why is he a stalker? Why is he like this? And Georgette, why is she a hypochondriac? There's so many stories and they never get filled in. But that's life. You don't know about everybody. That's kind of how you live your life is finding out little tiny bits about people and making judgments. And that's yeah. life. So I'm, I'm okay with not knowing more about them. It would have been a really long film and a different film if it, if it had gone more into, into each character. I think it gave us just enough that the dreamers could project if they wanted to. I think I had a similar reaction to it as that you did. I remember I was talking about Love Actually a long mm. time ago and you saying, I don't want all these other stories, I want to focus on one. Mm. And I felt there, was, there, were too many, there were too many things going on in this. I know that's part of it. It's kind of, it is a... A big hole, but I thought when it starts to focus more on Amelie and Nino, mm. I didn't feel there was much. I mean, Nino it felt like a complete non-entity to me. I couldn't get a handle on him at all, and so that that made me really, you know, I don't want to sound like a complete monster, but I didn't care if they got together or not. Uh, and at the end, <laughs> at the end, I thought, yeah, I don't think that's going to work. <laughs> How do you possibly judge that though? Because you don't know either of them enough to make that judgment. So, because there's so little to them. So, again, projection of whether you believe in happy ever afters or not. Well, I think so, it was more know. that I found the kind of the kind of way she manipulated the relationship, the way she he was just constantly chasing her, and she was manipulating it. So, even when it got to the final scene when they actually do meet, she kisses him in three places on her face and then she shows him you kiss me here you kiss me there you kiss me there mm. she's still leading it she's still dictating it and I felt like he he had no role in it at all how about that though kissing the eyes it makes me ooky <laughs> <laughs> it's a bizarre place to kiss is it not it's very French <laughs> you just, you just got to be very gentle <laughs> well, I'm just not going to bother <laughs> <laughs> I'm not suggesting we do it now no <laughs> No, let's move on. Um, so, Andy, I'm interested. I mean, I, I think I, I know the answer to this question if I ask Rachel. So, uh, Audrey Tattoo. I mean, do you think she do you think she did a good job in the role? Let alone your your your, um, your opinions of, of everything else with the film. Did she do a good job? Because this was written apparently for Emily Watson. Yeah, yeah. Um, she didn't go with it. Another. Uh, and I know we sometimes like to think about who else could have done it. Vanessa Paradis was uh, mm. was lined up for it, but I don't think either of those would have had. I, I don't think the magic of Audrey Tattoo. I think there was. I can, 
I can imagine Emily Watson more, but I think Audrey Tattoo is right for the role. I think she would have made a wonderful silent film star. She's very expressive. Mm. She's got these amazing eyes and little gestures. She's great in that she she's able to not give too much away, which is important. I think as much as I was frustrated that we couldn't get to know her more, I didn't want a little bit. And not, they, it felt like they they gave us the the right amount for what they were going for, uh, and. I think it it really underlines that that those two sides of kind of the light side, light fluffy side, and and the darker side, and I can even see that in the cover image, there's a famous cover image of her. And when when it came out, I knew loads of people who thought she looked really adorable and sweet and cute on that. And then I also knew some people who thought she looked slightly terrifying on it. <laughs> uh, and you, it's that little twinkle that you can see, and that little there, there's a real ambiguity. So. I think I think she does she does really kind of make it, but I don't know, I know that part of it for a lot of people is how absolutely adorable they they found her, and I didn't I didn't engage with her enough to to fall in love with Emily. I think a lot of people feel really deeply in love with this character and with this performance, and I thought, you see, I'm trying to put this in a way that that won't won't make me sound like a monster again. But <laughs> the only way I can think of describing it is that. I'm not really an animal lover in that I think animals are amazing. I think the animal kingdom is fascinating. It's wonderful. But I'm not an animal lover in that I need to get to know animals. And the only animals that I do love are ones that I've built up a relationship with, whereas some people can see a cute kitten and instantly feel genuine love towards it. And that's not me. If I had time with the kitten, I might... I might build up that that connection. So, like when people say to me, "Oh, you should you should get a pet," I always worry about that because I think if I get the wrong pet for me, that's kind of like having a blind date arranged where you have to move in with them for seventeen years. <laughs> uh, this that's kind of how I felt with with Audrey Tattoo here. For me, she it was like looking at a photo of a kitten for two hours, <laughs> in that I could see she was cute, I could see she was nice, but. I could see that she she nailed the part, but I got nothing more from it. And I think I won't blame her performance at all. I think it I think it is just the nature of the film that I didn't connect with. That's so fascinating because I can see a picture of a cat and fall in love with it. Yeah, I know, I know <laughs> and, you can. And yeah. so and so I can see a picture of Emily and fall in love with her. Yeah, That's, and I, don't I think that says it all, all, doesn't it? I don't doubt that. I know so I can see people who feel like that. It's genuine love. They don't, they're not yeah. overstating it. I don't believe in love at first sight in humans at all. I think that's no. overstating the case of lust. Yeah, but, uh, so do I. With animals, I can see there's that genuine... It's different. It's like, it's like when a, a parent looks at their newborn child and that instant protective connection it is, it is a kind of love, definitely. Mm. There's, there's a really good um, YouTube video that I found and this basically is what my heart does when I see it, when I see a cat. This, this young girl and when every cat she sees she's just oh I love it so much <laughs> and that's exactly what I'm like I see a cat on the street I'm like oh look at that and, just, oh, and I'm so affectionate towards it I don't know it at all I haven't built a relationship with it I just love it and I think maybe you need that kind of propensity for falling in love yeah. <laughs> to fall in love with Amelie because I love the colours and I love the music and I love the storytelling and I love the person and I love this and I love that and it's just so much love in one thing <laughs> and I don't need anything more than that did I, you fall I can in love with her in, then? Um, actually not as much as you'd probably think mm. I think I fell in love with the story with the storytelling um, I love the style of it I love the narrator like Paul was saying about his voice brilliant way to start fantastic voice 
and it became something because I love little bits of it. Like, and and the music is important because I did love the music so much. As soon as it started, I thought, oh, this music's really different. I really love this. And so my heart was already gone. Apparently, okay. the, um, the screen test of it, or it was shown somewhere, I can't remember where, and um, they showed it without music. And it didn't get put forward to Cannes because mm. of that. Um, and then they put the music in, everyone went, oh, it's a triumph. That's how important it was. Oh, yeah. And I do wonder sometimes if it hadn't had Jan Tiersen's score, would I be so enamoured with it? I don't know. But there's enough in it for me as a dreamer artist who loves cats. Because um, there was a cat in it. There it? was a cat in yeah. it as well, yeah. <laughs> she so didn't own a cat, she looked after a cat. Looked after she? a cat, yeah. So, I mean, I wanted to live in that apartment, I wanted to have a French life, and I wanted to go and have a coffee in that place, I wanted to go to the park with Nino, and it's just aspirational for me, I just want that life. So, um, yeah. yeah. Now, watching Amelie has got Rachel thinking about some other French films which are guaranteed to lift the heart and leave her with a big daft smile on her face. Before I start this feature, I want to apologise unreservedly for any, and there will be some, badly pronounced French names and words. I had the misfortune of having a truly terrible French teacher at school, who completely put me off learning the language for many years. It was only through Amélie that I started to love the language again. So, dubious French notwithstanding, here are my top five French feel-good films. I'm starting with something reasonably light and fluffy first. The romantic comedy Populaire. It has one of the oddest premises I've come across in a romance, but I guess, at heart, it's a kind of Pygmalion meets Cinderella story. A young girl from the countryside with a passion for typing, yes, you heard me right, typing, starts working as a secretary for a handsome, arrogant insurance agent who spots that she is an exceptionally fast typist. From there, he decides to train her as a competitive speed typist, and together they conquer the world of national and international speed typing while falling in love. It's no great classic, but it makes me feel good on so many levels. It's lovely to look at. The 1950s setting allows for some sumptuous colour choices, elegant costumes and beautiful production design. The music is gentle and romantic, with Leroy Anderson's forgotten dreams as a recurring theme throughout. But for that ultimate feel-good bunch, we have two leads with real chemistry and a happy ever after that just makes me grin from ear to ear. My next choice, Priceless, does something very clever. It takes a self-confessed and unapologetic gold digger and makes her incredibly likeable. So much so, I'm pretty sure you'll be rooting for her before the first half hour is through. Now, this could have something to do with the fact that the aforementioned gold digger, Irene, is played by Audrey Tattoo, but I genuinely think it's the writing and the way the story unfolds, as well as the lovely performance from Audrey, that gives our anti-hero a heart. The story starts with a misunderstanding which leads Irene to believe a hotel waiter is a wealthy suitor, from there we see the couple struggle with fawning in love versus the cynicism which has led both, but especially Irene, to look to money above romance. There's a moving scene when Irene is left sitting at the empty, cold poolside of an expensive hotel with her only possession the bikini she's wearing. If you haven't started feeling for her by that point, you will now. Since this is a feel-good film list, I don't think the ending will be any surprise, but there are a few twists and turns along the way that makes this a superior romantic comedy that's well worth a watch. Romuald et Juliet, which I've just discovered is called Mama, There's a Man in Your Bed in the US, is one of those films that appears in your You Like That So Watch This lists and which you take a punt on because, hey, why not? This was a real find for me and, again, another unexpected premise. 
a company director and the evening cleaning lady work together to unpick a mystery that has sent the company into a downward spiral and the director into serious trouble with the authorities. Put like that, this sounds like the dullest film ever, but I can assure you it isn't. The chemistry between the two unlikely leads is electric. The performance is authentic and heartfelt, and the romance that slowly blossoms entirely believable, as well as being much longed for by the audience. With this one, I'm pretty much smiling all the way through, and by the end, I've got the most stupid grin on my face, and I'm doing big old sighs of contentment. This is my go-to film if I'm feeling bad. And the last scene, well, I've never wanted to be in a scene so much in my life. Bliss. My penultimate choice is a skillful blend of romance, drama and comedy. Starring our lovely Audrey Tattoo again, she's so winsome, Delicacy tells the story of Natalie, a young widow still struggling to get over losing the love of her life and what happens when the potential of new love enters the frame. There are lots of themes in this film. Life after the death of a loved one, expectations of society on a young widow, what happens with mutual friends when new love comes along. But the whole thing is done without too much emphasis on mourning and sadness. The film largely takes place three years after her husband passes away, and more on the burgeoning relationship between Natalie and her unlikely new partner, Marcus. It is with Marcus that the true heart of the film lies, and where the feel-good factor ramps up for me. He is completely adorable. Goofy-looking, paunchy and a little daft, but with a heart of gold and you root for him from the beginning. Set against the attentions of Natalie's good-looking, powerful but ultimately sleazy boss, Marcus looks even more than light in shining armour. His gentleness and sweet humour warms the heart, and when the ending comes, you'll find yourself almost aching with the tenderness of it. My final film is my absolute favourite, but the feel-good comes at the cost of a few tears along the way. This one I caught while I was living in London, and it was showing in a tiny screen in Islington. I'm not sure what made me go and see it. I think I may have seen a poster on the tube, but it was a revelation. Untouchable is based on the true story of Philippe, a quadriplegic, and his relationship with his new, unlikely and life-changing carer, Driss. From the moment the two meet at Driss's reluctant interview, which he's only attending in order to get his unemployment benefit, there's a connection between the two. Driss doesn't patronise or talk down to Philippe. He doesn't feel sorry for him, and he doesn't give Philippe any space to feel sorry for himself either. Watching the two work out the dynamics of their relationship, while discovering new things about themselves, which improves not only their lives but the lives of those around them, is an absolute joy. There are necessarily dark moments in the film, but these are always counted with moments of pure happiness. The ending is bittersweet, but if you don't finish this film with a massive smile and your heart full to burst, then you're a far harder person than me. I was going to finish up with Untouchable, but I just want to mention one of the first French films I ever saw, Etre et Avoir, as it's one of the most heartwarming things I've ever seen. The simple premise, a year in the life of a school in rural France, this is a fly-on-the-wall documentary without narration. Trust me, none is needed. I won't tell you anything more than that. Just watch it and look out for Jojo. So, next time you're feeling less than happy and you turn to your film collection for some emotional support, look first to the French films. The odd couples, the strange premises, the chemistry, the beauty and the fearlessness. Don't get me wrong, there are plenty of French films that won't offer any kind of good feels, but when they do, there's nothing better. Well, thanks for that, Rachel. And yeah, I think you're right. I do think French films add 
I just, it feels just so stereotypical to say something, you know, so romantic <laughs> and feel good about. Je ne sais quoi. But I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put forward uh, the film Blue is the warming, warmest color, and not for the obvious reasons. You know, there are obvious things about that film, and I'm gonna go around that and just say, actually, that was I can't remember how long that was. That was about three, three about hours. Three hours. Yeah, about three yeah. hours. Yeah. But. It's one of these situations where I just enjoyed spending time with with people, and again, I think that a lot of that, I think a lot of that might be France. I think I really like France. We should do a, a spoiler French special <laughs> with my obvious uh, language skills. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a thing that I've, I've seen online which uh, I really don't like is when when people like film like foreign films, and they say, "Oh, you only like it because it's." It's foreign. I've seen people say, this, oh, you only like it because it's French. If it was exactly the same, but it was in English, you wouldn't make anything of it. And I think that is a really redundant point to make because the uh, the nationality that the film is, is completely tied up with it. If you, if you did it exactly the same, but in English, you would immediately sense that there was something wrong and you can't just remove that national identity from something. It's like, I really like Scandinavian films and they have a very specific national identity and you can't just put it in English and not notice anything. And I think, especially with a film like this, uh, it, its Frenchness is is part of its charm in the same way that, like, maybe you would say something like uh, Wallace and Gromit has a very British charm. And if you see, like, versions of it dubbed into other languages, it instantly looks a bit, a bit off and a bit strange. So I think that that's a really redundant point to, to make, saying that you only like something because it's foreign. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I've had that a few times. People go, oh, why do you like French films? You're just, you're just being pretentious. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, no, I'm not actually. I really like that French style. That You know, there is something about a French film, well, as evidenced by my list that I've just done, yeah. is that, you know, there is something, you know, something like Romuald de Juliet. You wouldn't find that exactly as it is in English or in America or whatever. You just wouldn't find it. It's just not something that we make. And that's fine. It's very French. And yeah. that's what I want. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah, it's wonderful. I mean, you could transplant Amelie into London and have a girl who's a dreamer, but the apartments wouldn't look like that. The setting wouldn't look like that. The music wouldn't fit it. Yeah. You know, there's certain things that just wouldn't work. We don't have that same culture. We do have a cafe culture, but it's not quite the same as the French. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's you know, it really isn't. So, you know, there's lots of things that just would not work. And so it has that. Frenchness about it is something that I love. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Just coming off the back of your list there mm. as well, and you mentioned Audrey Tattoo in a mm. couple of those films. Yeah. And I wanted to ask you, because I've only really got this film, and a long time ago I saw A Very Long Engagement, and they're the only two films that I've got to, to judge her as, as an actor on, uh, whereas you've seen her in, in quite a few things. How is she as an actor? Do you find, uh, is she is she quite diverse or is she often quite similar to the way she plays Amelie? Yeah, I, well, she's not similar to Amelie, actually. She's normally a bit more serious, yeah. um, especially in something like Delicacy, where she's obviously playing a very delicate part. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, very, it's very sad, but also, you know, there's lots of depth in that one. That's probably the most, um, the most in-depth that I've seen her do. I don't, I don't think she'll be sort of really pushed for a little while yet because she's still beautiful. And so at the moment, I think she's going to continue being cast in these kind of, isn't she ethereal or mm. isn't she beautiful? I mean, Priceless, she's funny. She's very funny. She can be very witty. And she can be very wicked, which comes <laughs> through in Amelie. And, you know, in, in Priceless, she's very much that. But it's still quite a shallow role in yeah. general. I think when she gets to be in her 50s, she will get some real meat to have a go at. And hopefully she'll be really good at it. 
I mean, she's certainly experienced enough. Yeah. And there have been moments of beauty and moments of where you go, wow, that's really quite affecting and quite powerful. But I don't honestly feel she's been tested yet. There was a so. film, I think not long after that, Emily, or it might have been before, where I think she played a stalker. Was it called yeah. Loves Me, Loves Me Not or yeah. something like that? Yeah. Have you seen that? I saw about half of it and I couldn't bear it. <laughs> oh, really? So it did, did, it not, yeah. did she not work in the part? Or? Um, she kind of did, but because it was, I watched Amelie and then I very quickly watched that. Mm. And I was like, ooh, this just doesn't work. It doesn't work. She couldn't, she couldn't erase the memory of Amelie for me. It's interesting because so. having seen Amelie, I thought she might work quite well in that part because yeah. I see elements of yeah. that in Amelie. Yeah, totally. Yeah, no, she was she was a bit too evil. <laughs> so I kept expecting her to go all cute and it just didn't happen. I'm like, oh, I don't like this. <laughs> so, but yeah, um, so far I'd say Delicacy is probably her best performance to date. But, I mean, here's the one thing I know about her. She can't actually skim stones. No, no, she can't. <laughs> it's easy. I'm, I, oh, I'm not so good at that. Really? No, no, but I think most people aren't brilliant at it's it practice exactly yeah, yeah I just think if, if they'd have get, put her on the bridge and said right here do this 20 times you'd have got one yeah. shot out of it surely <laughs> it's all about stone as well she was picking up some good stone so I was thinking mm, that's yeah, good, yeah. Wow. good what's skimmer. your record that's what you say yeah, you pick, was, that's yeah. what you say that's a good skimmer that yeah. what's your best skim how many eight eight mm. wow that was in the Lake District Only about five I think at Whitby I've probably done about three, but I think I just got That's lucky. That's all right. Just keep going. <laughs> I think new annual spoiler sk- stone skimming championships. <laughs> uh, we need a trophy or something like that. There's one little bit in this, and I, it, it, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I love the way you two talk about film when you go into depth, and then I come along and say something like, at one point she said about sending a fax and that just like stopped me for a minute <laughs> and thinking firstly well I mean that that really sort of it stops it I think there was a couple of things in there stops it being timeless like that mm. oh, another was the dictaphone thing and I think that that sort of says right okay that, that technology was available at a certain point and the same with the, the, the fax machine uh, which actually I, I don't know just the, it really I mean that's such a niggling and also as I'm saying it, I just think oh, it's a bit of naff point thing to point out but it's there but also I just want to send a fax (laughs) (laughs) can you still do that well we can at the university where I work yeah you Mm. can still uh, very rarely very rarely but no I mean how interesting would it have been well probably not very if there'd been mobile phones and so there would have been texting and Mm. thankfully that wasn't in there yeah um, because that does get rid of a lot of magic doesn't it really being able to communicate so quickly it does I mean I'm talking of the magic as well another uh, note I picked up from that from uh from the internet, really, is that, I mean, and this, I don't know whether this makes it, I mean, obviously it's an artificial France, isn't it? It's just like, a, mm. you know, the, 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 uh, the, the oh, what's his name? Richard Curtis. Richard Curtis is London, is not London. Yeah. Same with Paddington. Paddington's London, unfortunately, isn't London. <laughs> Uh, but the one thing I, which I thought was brilliant is that everywhere they went through, they would clean the area and the streets and take the grime up and clean the graffiti. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was right with that until we got to the graffiti point. I don't know. How, I mean, this is all right. I'm off on a tangent. I know. But how do you feel about graffiti? It's something I've actually been thinking about just recently. Um, I don't like tagging. Mm, yeah, yeah, me because too. Because it's like, I don't care who you there's are. No, there, well, there, <laughs> there's, and there's no art form there's, there's really no art for me form. in that. I, I mean, don't mind quotes. If you're trying to, I, I didn't mind that from Hoppolito because it gave him a bit of, oh, that's, and it's uplifting. That's a nice quote to share. If you're trying to share something, I think, if you're trying to share some art or a quote or something of importance or activism, I don't mind a bit of activism. It's just got to have some meaning, yeah. I think. Incredible things have been done with it. Though. There's a mm. there's an animated film called Muto. 
uh, which was entirely painted on public walls. Oh, wow. And it's incredible. You can't believe that you can make an animation out of graffiti on public walls. And uh, and it's got, that has got some political subtext to it and everything. So, yeah, certainly look that up. Muto. Yeah, M-U-T-O. I've been looking around at lamppost trees. Having the dog now, you know, we do a tour, we do a tour of the, uh, the, the lamppost of the south of Lincoln. And actually, what I'm what I'm finding there, and this is this is taking it really off on a tangent, and you know, <laughs> um, is that that it's, it would appear to me that a marker pen and a lamppost is is the voice of teenagers. That's what it is. It's crude drawings of appendages, obviously. Right? That's, that's, that, that's your base mark. It's a given. But actually, some people have drawn flowers on there. Some people have said war is a racket, which goes back to your point of saying, right, OK, yeah, this Meaning. is. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, some, there's something in there. And of course, there's calling other girls offensive names because uh, they've yes. kissed your boyfriend, etc., etc. <laughs> uh, but it is. it's funny you do, as you walk around and you find that and you think, oh. So, you know, it tells, a, it tells a story as you walk about the place. Now, how do I get from there to going back to talking about Amelie? <laughs> they, they, had lamp, they had some less serious lampposts in this film, didn't they? <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah, serious lampposts. <laughs> you see, it's funny because one of the other notes, I, I, made, I made these notes late at night, you can tell. You can tell because I've written this, right? And I don't expect an answer from this. I don't expect an answer. If I get one, I'll be thrilled. It says... <laughs> Did art take over in this film to stop it becoming a masterpiece? What was I... Did I art take over? I know, over? I know. What was I thinking? It's like... To that, stop it becoming a masterpiece. Do you know what that is? That When I read that out, it's like reading my teenage poetry that I, I <laughs> Is that wrote. something just, about indulgence? Self-indulgence or something? I Probably. don't know. Because there is a lot of art insofar as the colours and the setting and the production design and the costumes and everything else. Was that... At, but did it expense? stop it becoming a masterpiece? Well, this is it. Was, so. was that the... <laughs> at the well, see, I think that's what makes it heading towards a masterpiece because it's so sumptuous but maybe Andy would have preferred less colour oh, less no, no, artistry no, no. and more character I, I do I do love I do love the uh, the style the stylized yeah. nature of it and I think this director it's it's yeah. kind of a trademark isn't Very it much, and, yeah. Uh, yeah I do love all that I also one of the things that I really like about this film talking about the artificiality of it I like the way that he injects into that artificial world the reality of the death of Princess Diana and yes. that being a backdrop uh, again it, it's what make, it brings that nice dark subversive side to it and I love the way it's tackled in, in this film because and I, it's still quite a taboo subject in this country but I've always felt that obviously Princess Diana's death was no less tragic than anyone else's but I think in this country certainly there's been a habit of of playing it up as more tragic than millions of deaths before and since, and I think that that ties into to the royal element of it. And I think Amelie Amelie really gets gets to the the meat of that. And there's that 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 scene where she discusses with the uh, the lady in the newsstand, and the lady in the newsstand says, "Oh, it's it's so terrible. She was so young and beautiful." And Amelie says, "Would it be any less sad?" if she was old and ugly and she says well of course look at mother teresa and that's a really really cutting line and mm. but it really kind of it reflected a lot of what i felt and a lot of the kind of how unnerved i felt during the whole aftermath of, of the princess diana thing mm. and still do to this day whenever it, it comes up i feel i feel like it's it's too easy to upset people by expressing an opinion over and yet 
I feel there's a lot a lot I want to say about yeah. it. Yeah, I mean, I would say, I would say radio-wise, and this is not me holding out in caution, Andy, because I, I, I think I, I, you and I, they're perhaps in a similar vein on this, but uh, radio-wise, uh, avoid Princess Di, don't offend cat owners. <laughs> simple. It's Radio 101. The two that. golden rules. Yeah, yeah. And always, always play it a blondie track if you're in trouble. <laughs> gets, you out, gets you out of it completely. Stick heart of glass on, everyone's foot's tapping. <laughs> so I think it's probably time to move towards the end something we'd like to think about and I think you probably already touched on this I think well, Rachel I'd perhaps like to think what you find out what you think maybe about are they still together? Yes <laughs> naturally <laughs> because I'm projecting right? Yeah so if you tell me they're not yeah. together that means that I'm doomed to be single for the rest of my life um, no of, of course they are in my head totally because there's a whole thing about when they were children and they were, one was dreaming for a sister and one was dreaming of a brother and when the photographs talks to Nino and says, you've always been in love with her. That's the dreamer part of it. That's the magic bit. Just suspend your disbelief because, of course, you don't know enough about them and everything else, but you don't need to. This is a magical place where she's, you know, taking taking the heart rate of a crocodile and there's a woman in a coma. There is so much magic in this. You can't go, oh, they won't be together because it's not realistic. None of it's realistic. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, you've got to... I'm not going to pick and choose which bits I'm going to believe in. I believe in all of it. And so I believe, therefore, that they will be together, that they are kindred spirits, that this is, you know, they've been in love with each other from the moment they were born, really, just yearning for one another. Because that's my romantic heart and that's how it works for me. And that's why I love Amelie so much, because it just taps into that romance, that fairy. It is a fairy tale. It's a fairy tale. And there is, like, sort of fairy godmother in The Glass Man is a bit of a fairy godmother and... You know, and it's also a bit Jane Austen because she's a bit like Emma. And so there's all these little bits that come together to make it. It's very romantic, dreamy, unrealistic, but ultimately very satisfying film. And so, of course, they're together because that's what we've been told all the way through, that they're meant to be. OK, given that, I'm not going to ask Andy. (laughs) (laughs) I'd love to end this on an upbeat note I think <laughs> I um, think you think you're, yeah. you're right not to ask me <laughs> um, so as we get to the as we get to the rating for this film Andy I haven't got a sitting on the fence one <laughs> I, I don't know if either of you have ever heard um, the album Jazzmatazz by uh, Guru Awesome album, yeah. awesome. Um, there'll be a couple of people, you know, out of the, the regular listeners we've got, a couple of list, people listening now will go, oh, do you know what, I heard that for ages. And now they'll go and find it on their playlist or they'll, they'll dig it out of the CDs, which are now under the bed because they haven't got around to selling them on Music Magpie or something. Um, and they, he did this brilliant uh, track, Guru did this brilliant track uh, with MC Solo, and it was called uh, Le Bien, Le Mal. See, I can do it. Yeah. And uh, so I'm going to say, was this Très Bien or Très Mal? Rachel. Très bien. Oh. Mm-hmm. Uh, très sitting on the fence. Pas mal. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just, I mean, quite simply, I think I, 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 I had my sore bottom from sitting on a fence uh, with this film. Um, but just because it's, it's been wonderful to hear Rachel sing its praises. Uh, and uh, I'm going to go très bien. Hey. <laughs> And now, uh, thank you, thank you so much for listening. Um, I, I really, I'm so sorry, genuinely sorry about the, the French at the beginning of this episode. If you know, if well, you maybe you want to set up a Facebook group, you know, <laughs> something. Oh dear. Um, so thank you to uh, Johnny Hall for producing this episode. Thanks, of course, as always, uh, to Rachel and Andy for joining me here uh, to to discuss this, and thanks to you. Thank you very much for listening. And we'll leave you, as always, 
with the genial, le genial. <laughs> God, stop it. Andy Goulding. My friend, who tends to be pedantic, asked me how I am. And I replied, oh, thanks, I'm doing good. To which my friend grew frantic and insistently began correcting what I'd said to what I should. He pointed out that doing well's the term you mean to use, referring to your personal prosperity, while doing good suggests performing charitable works, a phrase he spat with undeserved severity. I thanked him for his input and conceded my mistake, but added an addendum to my answer, explaining, I'm just on my way to volunteer my time at a shop supporting research into cancer. My shift with the Samaritans has left me rather tired, but the blood drive is expecting me straight after. And I promised I'd swing by the children's hospital tonight, for the greatest drug to me is children's laughter. The warmest inner glow a human being can ever know is the feeling you did everything you could. So though it's true to say I'm doing very well today, that comes as a result of doing good. My answer hit my friend as if I'd punched him in the chest. His position switched from bolt upright to sedentary. For though Rock crushes scissors in the classic schoolyard game, in the game of life, self-righteousness trumps pedantry. You've been listening to Spoiler, hosted by me, Paul Tyler, with Andy Goulding and Rachel Bennett. Our theme music was composed by Ron Butcher. If you've enjoyed the show, please do tell your friends about it. Share the links to our show or write us a nice review on iTunes. Next time on Spoiler, we're taking a look at Richard Linklater's critically acclaimed coming-of-age drama, Boyhood. Right this second, there's like no elves in the world, right? No. Technically, no elves. If you'd like to contact us, you can email hello at spoilerpodcast.co.uk. Find us on Twitter or Facebook, or go to our website, spoilerpodcast.co.uk. Spoiler is produced by Johnny Hall and is a Joe Schmo production. The show was recorded at the studios of Siren Radio in the heart of the beautiful cathedral city of Lincoln. Bonjour, je m'appelle Paul Tyler, et je vous souhaite... <laughs> already, already it's gone. Et je vous souhaite... <laughs> les livres et les émissions de télévision. <laughs> les livres. <laughs> there you go. Right, we're doing it word by word. Integralite. 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 In, in, integralite. I like a latte. What's 2001 in French? I'm going to say 2001. Amélie. Non. Okay, I've got it. I've got it. Donk. <laughs> what it says? It says donk. Donk. <laughs> droid. 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 Donk. Droid. Droid. Avec la spectacle. Right, I'm going with that, I'm going with that, you're going to have to pick that out. <laughs>